How many of you can honestly say you enjoy being criticized? Now, come on, George. You and Blair need to sing a duet to do repentance, I think, for, for that. You know, we just don't enjoy criticism, even when it's needed or deserved. <clears throat> Constructive criticism is one thing, but when it comes from a critical spirit or a judgmental attitude, it's just pretty hard to deal with. The text this morning is one that should not have had to have been written. It is also a text that <clears throat> Paul did not want to write, but it need to be written, and it was. Why? Because criticism is one of the unavoidable realities of life that we all need to face. And what we're going to see this morning is simply, very briefly, a couple of the criticisms that uh, Paul received, and they were from a critical spirit. They were not constructive criticisms. And then we're going to see how he responded to them. Our text, 2 Corinthians chapter 10. We're making pretty good progress. We've only got three or four more weeks in the book of 2 Corinthians 4 or 5. We're going to begin reading at verse 7. <clears throat> Do you look at things according to the outward appearance? If anyone is convinced in himself that he is Christ, let him again consider this in himself, that just as he is Christ, so are we. For even if I should boast somewhat more <clears throat> about our authority, which the Lord gave to us for edification and not for destruction, I shall not be ashamed lest I seem to terrify you by letters. For his letters, they say, are weighty and powerful, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech contemptible. Let such a person consider this, that what we are in word by letters when we are absent, such we will also be indeed when we are present. <clears throat> For we dare not class ourselves or compare ourselves with those who commend themselves, but they, measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves, are not wise. We, however, will not boast beyond measure, but within the limits of the sphere which God appointed us, a sphere which especially includes you. <clears throat> For we are not overextending ourselves, as though our authority did not extend to you. For it was to you that we came with the gospel of Christ, not boasting of things beyond measure, that is, in other men's labors, but having hope that as your faith is increased, we shall be greatly enlarged by you in our sphere to preach the gospel in the regions beyond you and not to boast in another man's sphere of accomplishment, but he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. For not he who commends himself is approved, but whom the Lord commends. Heavenly Father, living here below, is not always pleasant, it's not always easy, and uh, there are difficult things that we must face. Many potholes in the road of life. One of those, Father, is dealing with the reality of criticism, particularly when it's not needed. 
Why this text on this day, I do not know. But Father, I do know that it is your word. It is through your word that our lives are changed. And I pray, Father, for those particularly who need to hear this content this morning, I pray that the Holy Spirit would use it. And I pray that our lives would be benefited as a result. And I pray, Father, that as we live our lives before a watching world, that the life of Christ might be seen in us. And Father, as we come into contact with those who are not believers, I pray that we would not look upon them as evangelism projects, but that we would seek to build relationships with people and then to love people regardless of their response to Christ. I pray, Father, that you will be our teacher this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. A pessimist is a person who is seasick during the entire voyage of life. I like that. Two pessimists met each other at a party. Instead of shaking hands, they shook their head. In, In contrast to a pessimist and his first cousin, compulsive critic, I want to read the familiar words of President Teddy Roosevelt, who said, Far better it is to dare mighty things, to win glorious triumphs, even though checkered by failure, than to rank with those poor spirits who neither enjoy nor suffer much, because they live in the gray twilight that knows neither victory nor defeat. If you're living in the gray twilight of neither victory nor defeat, I would say to you, dare to fail. Dare to be criticized. Dare to be and to do. Some will encourage and support you. Others will hide in the shadows and shoot their darts based upon hearsay and ignorance. There is a principle... And it's this, the higher up the ladder of responsibility you climb, the more the seat of your britches will show. We have a term here in America since football was invented called Monday morning quarterbacks. We've all been guilty of that, haven't we? How many, how much criticism did you hear of the last play of the Super Bowl this year. Well, that quarterback should have known better than to throw that pass right into the hands of... No, that's right where he should have thrown it. But the defender anticipated, got ahead of the receiver, and was able to hold on to the ball, and the other team won. The team that was supposed to win didn't. That's my team. But, oh, the Monday morning quarterback... Here are a couple things to keep in mind about criticism. No one is immune to criticism. No one. It goes with living among humans. Criticism can be taken too lightly or too seriously. If we take, take criticism too lightly, we'll never grow up, we'll never mature. If we take it too seriously, We'll lose heart. 
When we take it too seriously, we become tenuous and intimidated. And the critic becomes our master. And we become people pleasers. We all need to be like a baked potato, warm and tender on the inside with a tough skin on the outside. A quote that I heard that I think really is apropos, what people say about us is never quite true, but never quite false. They always miss the bullseye, but always seem to hit the target. And criticism needs to be, some criticism needs to be answered, but much of it does not. For spending every day answering every detail of every critic, we'll just, we're just chasing rabbits and we'll never be effective. On the other hand, if one never listens to criticism, we've got a greater problem. We all need strong people about us who are willing to tell us the truth, to speak up and to say those hard things. We need to discern honest criticism and respond openly. On the other hand, if it's a cheap shot from a chronic grouch, forget it. There will always be a few little people who feel that their spiritual gift is the gift of criticism. Second Corinthians is the autobiography of the Apostle Paul, the autobiography of a bleeding heart. Paul unmercifully was attacked by the Judaizers, the false teachers who were trying to discredit the message by attacking the messenger. He wrote with an open heart and made himself transparent and vulnerable. There's much here that we can learn from. Learn. We begin with the reality of criticism. The first criticisms were stirred up by these false teachers. And we've run into these criticisms before. In fact, last week, in the first couple verses of our text, verse 1, they accused him of being a hypocrite. In presence, you are lowly. But being absent, when you're writing by letter, you're bold, and you come up, come off like a gangbuster. The Greek word for hypocrite literally means to speak from behind a, a mask. We have a term in our vernacular, speaking from both, both sides of your mouth. Pretty much the same idea. They were accusing him of being a hypocrite, they were challenging his authenticity. You're not, re- you're not a real person, Paul. And there could have been nobody more real than the Apostle Paul. And then they said, you're carnal. They were saying, or Paul said of them, you think of us as if we walked according to the flesh. How would you respond if you poured your life into the life of someone and received in return nothing but suspicion an accusation, challenging your authenticity. But I want to say, if you're willing to obey the Lord and invest your life in others, you won't always be appreciated. It's very much like the mother of a two-year-old. You're not going to get any immediate appreciation. And for those of you that are over 20, how many of you have, had, have gone back to your parents 
And given that little speech of, I'm sorry, please forgive me, now I'm old enough to appreciate all that you did back there, the restraints that you put upon me that I resisted. Thank you, Mom. Thank you, Dad. I don't want to show of hands, but I bet there would be a few up if I, if I asked for that. In Paul's case, he was an apostle. And as such, he was placed in a unique position of authority. They challenged his authenticity, and then they challenged his authority. Verse 8. For even if I should boast somewhat more about our authority, which the Lord gave us for edification and not for destruction, I should not be ashamed. Paul had been forced into this discussion. And what he's saying, I wouldn't be ashamed because as a matter of record, the Lord gave this authority to me. It wasn't a responsibility that I sought. And furthermore, its purpose is to edify, not to intimidate. And I think it's at this point, in gentleness and meekness, all through this text, he comes to a place where he said, you need to face up to your own sin and quit shifting the blame onto others. Isn't that one of our natural first responses to balance blame with shame, guilt with the other guy? That's what they were doing. They were pointing the finger at Paul when they should have been looking at themselves. But it gets worse. First, they challenge his authenticity. They challenge his authority. And they said, and furthermore, Paul... We think you're ugly and that your mother dresses you funny. They challenged his appearance. Verse 10. Lest I seem terrified by your letters, for his letters, they say, are weighty and powerful, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech is contemptible. How do you like them apples? There's an old parchment that dates back to the 2nd century A.D. It's titled The Acts of Paul and Thecla. It was written by Onesiphorus of Iconium. And he is the only one, I believe, he's the only one who has given us a description of the physical appearance of the Apostle Paul. And here's how he describes him. He's a man of little stature, thin-haired, crooked in the legs, with eyebrows meeting, and a nose somewhat hooked. There you have it. Short, bald, bow-legged, bushy-eyebrowed, and hook-nosed. Not exactly Prince William or Brad Pitt, or whoever the latest heartthrob might be. What I'd like to say is, folks, don't ever discredit the message because of the appearance of the messenger. Who was the forerunner of Jesus? A fellow by the name of John the Baptist. He dressed in camel hair, a thick leather belt, and ate grasshoppers. Wicked King Ahab was out to find the prophet Elijah. And he sent a fellow by the name of Obadiah 
and Obadiah came across the prophet Elijah. And Obadiah goes back to Ahab and he says, I found him. What does he look like? To make sure it was Elijah. He said he's a hairy man and he wears a leather belt. Again, not uh, fashion magazine. Now, I've never been more serious when I say what I'm going to say right now. My heart sincerely goes out to you ladies who are especially beautiful and to you men who are especially handsome. You get a lot of attention and it's all the wrong kind. And in that attention is a real urge to take on the value system of the world that's all about appearance. And I think there's something to be said for people on the extreme other end of the spectrum, especially those who have uh, had the unfortunate experience of a disfiguring accident. Now, I don't know what it is, but I find it even in myself. I'll, I'll give a for instance. There's a lady in the Kenai church who talks like this, and her head jerks. And I, I, I just my human reaction is to withdraw. But she and I have learned that we can now communicate by email. Locked inside that body is a beautiful, beautiful creature as intelligent as you and I. It is so easy to allow outward appearance to affect our response to people. William Wilberforce was one such person. He was the one who tirelessly fought for the freedom of slaves in Britain. A month after his death, due largely to his determination, the British Emancipation Proclamation was passed. He was so small and frail a creature that when he stood up on a windy day, some people were afraid it would blow him down. An attorney named Boswell heard him speak in public Afterward, he said, I saw what seemed to be a shrimp upon the table. But as I listened, he grew until the shrimp became a whale. Have you ever known such a person? I fear that we are far too taken up with the value system of the world and make judgments upon people based upon their appearance. And I don't think a pastor needs to look like an unmade bed in the pulpit. But neither should his appearance be first priority. Verse 7 says, do not look on things according to the outward appearance. And in verse 12, we dare not class ourselves or compare ourselves with those who commend themselves. But they, measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves, are not wise. Now, when you take it all away, the carnal core of most criticism is comparison. Comparing one with another, and we begin to become critical. In the end, it is not criticism, the criticism we receive, but our response to it that matters the most. Paul's response to these critics contained instructions 
for those who would be critics and those who are criticized. And those who would be critics, in verse 7, we need to correct our perspective. Verse 7 says, do you look at things according to the outward appearance? In their case, they were, they were convinced that uh, they belonged to Christ, but they weren't so sure about Paul. Well, if you're in Christ, we are too, no matter what the appearance might look like to you, just because I'm ugly and my mother dresses me funny, I still belong to Christ. Your judgment is based upon the wrong things. Don't make judgments upon outward appearances. Don't get all hung up on the package and miss out on the content. Don't look at the obvious and miss the significant. Next time you are criticized or tempted to criticize, put yourself in the shoes of the other guy. Charles Swindoll writes, I was tempted to be critical of a professor until a fellow student said, did you know he has two children who are retarded and a third who is near death at this very moment? We need to give each other a break and as possible put ourselves in the shoes of the other guy. Second, when facing a critic, clarify your purpose. That's what Paul did. For, verse 8, For even if I should boast somewhat more about our authority, which the Lord gave us for edification and not for destruction, I shall not be ashamed. Sometimes we need to slow down and reaffirm our purpose and our motivation. And not necessarily to the critic, but to ourselves. As a pastor, I have to remind myself it's not about growing the church. It's about every individual equally significant and important within the church. I need to remind myself why it is that I've stuck with this preacher thing for 45 years. It's because I believe the Word of God is God's instrument that the Holy Spirit used to bring change into our lives as well as salvation to our souls. And I need to remind myself often that I am an investor. I am a mere link in a chain. I'm simply sowing seed. In all of our lives, if you've come to faith in Christ, you can look back and you can see the links in the chain that God used. And in every case, the harvest belongs to him. Life is all about him, not me. My responsibility is to obey, not to try to control. Outcomes are God's department. Our department is to live Christ and to sow seed. The outcome is his. The next response may surprise you. Confess your prerogatives. Verse 11. Let such a person consider this, that when we are what we are in word by letters, when we are absent, such we will also be indeed when we are present. For we dare not class ourselves or compare ourselves with those who commend themselves, but they measuring themselves by themselves comparing themselves among themselves 
I think he was very kind. He said, they're not wise. They're more than not wise. Stupid. Dumb. You know, we're all little frogs, or excuse me, we're all big frogs in a little puddle. And uh, we tend to compare ourselves with those around us. And God says, don't do that, or Paul does. In essence, Paul said of himself, we are who we are. What you see is what you get. What he did not do was apologize when there was nothing for which to apologize. And oh, how I have caught myself in days past apologizing, and I couldn't figure out why I was apologizing. That is not pleasing to God. Paul is saying, I'm only what I am. I won't be held captive to comparisons with others. I'm not in competition with anybody. And I got this piece of advice quite a number of years ago, and it has really served me well, and I give it to you, and I hope you'll hear it. Know who you are. Like who you are. And be who you are. By knowing who you are, you have identity. And you can put to bed that devastating need to try to measure up to others. As a a young pastor in Anchorage, about 100 years ago, we came to start a church. And we came under the auspices of the Grace Brethren Home Mission Council. And every year they required us to go to California and partake in the, participate in the Home Mission Council workshop. We had a church, first couple of years of 20, 30 people just getting going and it was tough sledding. And we'd go down to these workshops and we would come back so discouraged because the speakers at these workshops were these high-octane, alpha male, A-class personality that drank a couple of gallons of coffee every day, I'm sure. And, and I would just, you know, they were from ex-mega church, and they just go on and on about my attitude. I'll never be able to live up to that. And I would go home defeated until I got this kind of counsel, understood I am who I am, and I am to like who I am, and to be who I am, who I are. And I learned to go back from those home mission workshops, or to go to them seeking one thing I could bring home and apply. By knowing who you are, you have identity. By liking who you are, you can learn to be grateful for the gifts that God has given you. And you can learn to do well what it is that God has given you that you can do well. And by being who you are, you, lean, you learn to be secure. You lean, learn to be genuine. You learn to put on no pretenses, to put on no airs, and to say, here it is, this is who I am. I like that. Oh, that we would let each other be who we are. Finally, communicate the particulars. Concerning your mandate, 
Verse 13, we, however, will not boast beyond measure, but within the limits of the sphere which God appointed us. And by the way, a sphere, that includes you, Corinthians. In essence, what he was saying, God gave me this ministry responsibility, and I will follow him, not my critics. And then concerning his motivation, verse 14, For we are not overextending ourselves as though our authority did not extend to you. For it was to you that we came with the gospel of Christ. Our motive is pure and unchanged. It's to proclaim the gospel of Christ, which we did to you also. He's putting, putting it where it really is. And thirdly, concerning our maturity, verse 15, not boasting of things beyond measure, that is, in other men's labors, but having hope that as your faith is increased, we shall be greatly enlarged by you in our sphere. We welcome honest criticism. We want to be teachable and benefit from you too, not only personally, but in our ministry, verse 16, to preach the gospel to the regions beyond and not to boast in another man's sphere of accomplishment. We want your assistance as we move forward. Our heart's bottom line, our desire is to preach in regions beyond, encouraged and enabled by partnership with you. I just want to, in a summary way, say that in all of this chapter 10, Paul got it all out on the table, very authentically, so that they could talk about it. It was no longer skeletons in the closet. And you know, as, as individuals in relationships with others, and as families, and most particularly as churches, the temptation is to take all of our dirty laundry and throw it under the rug. But you know what? When we do that, it leaves lumps in the carpet. And those lumps just get bigger and bigger and bigger. I challenge you, if you have a conflict with somebody, go to them. If there's something that needs to be uh, worked out, go. Don't hide. Don't keep the skeletons in the closet. Well, for the first time in a long time, I'm going to let out on time. You ought to be proud of me. It does happen once in a while. But I want to leave you with this. Three things. Number one, openly accept responsibility when you're wrong. When the criticism's justified, take it on the chin. The three hardest words to say in the English language are, you are right. The next three are, I was wrong. The next three, I am sorry. The next three, please forgive me. That's how we grow when we face up to criticism that is needed. Second, humbly stand where you know you're right. Don't apologize. On the other hand, do so humbly. Very important. Verse 1, Paul began by speaking of the meekness and gentleness of Christ. There will always be those who would move us away from our proper place 
of service. Verse 17 says, But he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. And finally, calmly expect God to defend you in either case. The last verse, verse 18 says, For not he who commends himself is approved, but whom the Lord commends. God's timing might not be to our liking, but he will vindicate us in the end. Let him. I have ten grandsons. All but one live in Alaska currently. Two of those, three of those grandsons are currently in the audience. And my comments are not directed at any one of them. But I do have a younger grandson who is prone to brag about how good he is. And so he and I have undertaken a project. And that project is to memorize Proverbs 27, 2, which says, let another praise you and not your own lips. A stranger and not your own mouth. Please bow your heads. This subject is very well could be a tender spot in in your life. You may have recently faced criticism and you're pretty raw. It's an unpleasant topic. Yet it's an important issue and it's important to our maturity and growth. Maybe right now it's restraint that you need. Lord, give me the restraint to listen to what I need to hear. Help me to get beyond the pain to hear what you're saying. Maybe it's pride that needs to be dealt with. Lord, help me to humble myself before those who would honestly criticize me for my good. Maybe you need courage to go to a brother and confront because you know love demands it. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. And if you need to write a letter, maybe it's the spiritual integrity to sign it that you need. And perhaps today you need to admit the hardest thing you've ever had to face. The fact that you've fooled everyone but yourself. But you know that if you were to die right now, you would have to face God without Christ as your Lord and Savior. Father, I pray that if there is some self-deception going on out there of the eternal issue of life, its eternal destiny, I would pray, Father, that you would give humility to come to you in repentant faith to surrender life 
through the Lord Jesus Christ and to receive his forgiveness, to receive eternal life. And Father, as we go through this life, criticism is inevitable. Help us, Lord, in meekness and gentleness to follow the principles of your word, one of which is to not apologize when there is nothing to apologize for, but in meekness and gentleness to seek edification and uh, strengthening of our brothers and our sisters in Christ. Lord, it's not up to me to make application. I pray, Father, that by your Spirit, you will penetrate our hearts where they need to be penetrated. In Jesus' name, amen.